Hello everyone, my name is Dr Neil Buttery, food historian and chef, and this is the British Food History Podcast. How are you? I do hope you're good. In today's episode, I am talking to returning guest and friend of the show, food historian and writer, Sam Bilton, talking all things chocolate. Now, as I warned you a month or so ago, the episodes are coming out a little slower than in previous runs. There's books, there's museum projects and other things, so please be patient. I'm aiming for two-week gaps between episodes, but if I can do fewer, I will try. Well, I've got no real news this week, (laughs) so all I have to say is that I want to hear from you for the postbag edition of the podcast at the end of the season. So any questions, comments, queries from this episode or any other episodes, let me know. Food memories are of particular interest to me, as long-term listeners will know. And we're talking about chocolate cake and chocolate bars today, so I'm sure plenty of memories are going to be fired off today. The best chocolate cake, in my opinion, is the one in the B-Row book. Do you remember the B-Row book, folks? And it appears in one of the really old editions from the 1970s, and it cannot be beaten, in my humble opinion. But of course, if you've got any burning questions about food history in general, or even an idea for a future topic for podcast or blog, let me know about those too. I was thinking about maybe doing an historical cookbook club or something, you know, focus on a book, cook some stuff, share them online via Zoom or something, I don't know. It's a germ of an idea, I'm going to develop it maybe. Anyway, please get in contact. My email is neil at britishfoodhistory.com. Or you can leave a comment beneath a post on social media or send me a DM. Twitter, stroke X, at Neil Buttery, or Instagram and threads, doctor, that's dr, underscore Neil, underscore Buttery. Or alternatively, go to the British Food of History Facebook discussion page. That's at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash British Food History. I know I'm Blue Sky, so find me there. My handle is at Neil Buttery also. If you haven't already, please leave a rating Follow or write a review wherever you get your podcasts. Every single one helps. And thank you to everyone who has done this already. There's great ratings on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. So carry on the good work. It all helps the podcast get seen by more people. And of course, you can support the podcast even further by recommending it to a friend, colleague, family member, neighbour, frenemy. You get the picture. And if you want to support the upkeep of the podcast and blogs by donating a virtual coffee or virtual pint, please visit the website britishfoodhistory.com and go to the support, the blog and podcast tab. On that very same page, you can become a £3 monthly subscriber where you can access premium blog content, a monthly newsletter in your inbox and my Easter eggs. And there are hours of Easter eggs now. Deleted, excised fillets from previous chats, plus whole episodes just for subscribers. The last two seasons have had an extra bonus episode at the end, and I hope to continue this tradition. There's two Easter eggs today, which I'll tell you about at the end, but let's now talk about today's episode. Sam Bilton, she's been on a few times already talking about gingerbread, saffron, and then we collaborated on that episode all about tripe. Today, though, we're talking about the subject of her new book, Chocolate. Sam has written a book that's part of the Philosophy of series published by the British Library. I talked to Sajal Sukadwala about the philosophy of curry all the way back in 2022, if you remember. But today, Sam and I talk about how the peoples of Mesoamerica took their chocolate, how it came to Britain, chocolate houses, 
the sexualization of chocolate, and the Cadbury's cream egg controversy, amongst many other things. So without further ado, The Philosophy of Chocolate with Sam Bilton. Hello, Sam. Welcome back to the podcast. Thank you for having me back. I think you're my most returning guest so far. I? I think so, yeah. Well, I am honoured. Mm. Hey, congratulations and well done on The Philosophy of Chocolate, published by British Library. Thank you. I'm very, um, I'm chuffed with this one. Well, I'm chuffed with all my books, to be fair. But yeah, I am particularly pleased with this one. You should be. It's, um, well, I suppose unlike your other books, that you know, Gingerbread and um, Saffron, you get to go into a huge amount of detail and detail lots of different recipes and show off all your research. You've showed your research off very much in this book, but it's a very different one to your other ones because this is very much, uh, it's very much sort of slimmer, more of like a little coffee table book almost for you to dip in and out of. Yeah, I mean, the, the brief was that it was designed for the gift market. So it's yeah. it's a an overview, as I say to people, it's an overview of chocolate history rather than a deep dive. Mm. So what my hope is that people will go off and want to find out more. Uh, it's supposed to whet the appetite, if you like. Yes, it's a huge subject. Like a lot of these sort of commodity, ex-exotic foods that we have, like chocolate, coffee, sugar, tea, they all are very interesting histories and kind of interesting places in our own culture and our identities, don't they? Yeah, absolutely. Initially, when I was given the brief, I was like, I can't do the book justice. I can't do the subject justice within the scope of the philosophies of series. But yeah, actually, quickly, when you start looking into it, so I picked out key themes rather than doing sort of a strict timeline type mm. approach to the history of chocolate. Yeah, that's, it's got to be the way to do it, isn't it? Because you'd have to just put in so much other history. So I reckon you've definitely taken the right approach. Well, can we just talk about chocolate and chocolate and its origins, at least from our point of view as people in, in Europe? It's a new world food. Yes. Unlike coffee and sugar, even though they were being grown a lot over in the new world, they had to be moved over with the colonists, yeah. European colonists. But chocolate is a new world food like tomatoes and potatoes, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. It comes from Central America. It's actually, cacao is a really fussy plant. It doesn't, mm. it's hard to grow. So it'll only grow 20 degrees north or 20 degrees south of the equator, for starters. Oh. So it makes it quite hard to find somewhere that has the right conditions. It has to be grown at a certain temperature. It can't be too cold or too hot even. So it's, it really is, it's a, basically it's a tropical plant. So it grows in uh, Central America, places like Guatemala, Honduras, Nicaragua, uh, mm -hmm. southern Mexico. And then it um, also has latterly been transplanted across to the other side of the world, to Africa. Yes. Um, where you've got it on the Gold Coast. I didn't realise it was such a narrow band and how picky it was. It's like the Goldilocks of crops, isn't it? Doesn't like it too yeah. hot, not too cold, not too dry, not too moist. <laughs> <laughs> What's uh, what I found interesting when I was researching it is that apparently even the Aztecs in sort of the uh, sort of further north, where you think of Mexico City being in in Mexico, they had to import cacao because it, they could didn't have the right conditions to grow it in the higher re uh, regions of Mexico. So it's you know it is quite fussy. So in some ways, it's quite phenomenal that it's had the success that mm. it has over the centuries. Because it's it, it really isn't that easy to grow. Unlike, I mean, perhaps sugar, I know, needs certain 
conditions to grow but sugar i think has probably been a lot easier to yeah the ba- the band is much thicker and it peters yeah. out slowly so you know you, you can grow it in places like spain and, and portugal and it's a bit more seasonal up there yeah. in those sort of more slightly more northern climes but you can you can grow it i mean there's no chance of getting cocoa growing in europe i would imagine absolutely none i think they have a, a cacao plant in uh one of the greenhouses at kew oh do but, they uh, <laughs> I'm not sure they're making any chocolate from it. No. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's one or two, maybe two plants there. So it was being grown with uh, by other cultures even before the Mayans and the Aztecs. So it's in terms of Central America mm. or the Mesoamericans, chocolate in some form has been, or cacao has been around for well centuries. Yeah, yeah. Before the Europeans got hold of it or encountered it. Yeah, it's well ingrained in, into their culture and their identity. I mean, there's, t- there's talk about them consuming chocolate. Do we have uh, a clear idea of what that, that drink or food or whatever, I always imagine it to be a drink, um, that they're consuming? What what kind of form it comes in? Would it be something recognisable to us today, do you think, as, a, as chocolate? What do you think? Not strictly speaking, because we when we think of drinking chocolate, so it, was, it was definitely a drink. Right. For starters, when we should say that it was... As far as we can tell, unfortunately, a lot of the documentation that the Mesoamericans had was destroyed, um, unfortunately. So mm. from what the, the little that is left, what archaeologists have ascertained is that it was used as a drink. We don't think it was used in food. It was certainly used, the cacao beans themselves were used as a currency, but that's a whole different subject. But uh, it was consumed as a drink. So it would have been ground and processed with Different herbs and spices, very different to what we think of in the UK or in Europe. So they would have had vanilla, which comes from, again, from Central America as well. Of course it does. Which actually we isn't unusual now because we think of chocolate and vanilla being bedfellows. But mm-hmm. uh, there is a, uh, we call it the ear flower. It has got a very long Latin name that I can't pronounce, but uh, the ear flower, which apparently has quite a spicy tone to note to it oh okay and achiote which is orinato as we know it which is a a red we now use it as like a red food coloring yes you see it on ingredients list on foods don't you all the time yeah yeah absolutely so they were the key flavorings that went into these chocolate drinks and then they would be the chocolate would be infused in warm or cold water and then they would pour it from vessel to vessel to create a froth, which is how the Spanish got the idea of frothing it up. Ah. But it was made with water. And when the Spanish first encountered it, it would have been a very spicy, very bitter. There's no sugar at this point. Mm-hmm. Possibly, I've been told that it may have been sweetened with honey, but I think the general perception is that it was served as a very bitter, spicy drink. And it was extremely highly valued. So it would, because as I said, cacao, was money. Uh, it's like if you have the equivalent <laughs> of setting fire to £20 notes or £50 notes, essentially. It wasn't something that was being drunk by the general population. Mm-hmm. It was definitely an elite drink that was being consumed by the Mayans and the Aztecs. There's evidence that Mayan nobility were buried with drinking chocolate vessels, uh, these mm. calabash cups that they had. So yeah, it's it was a really was highly valued by the Mesoamericans. So I guess when the Europeans came over and and saw that and saw it was an elitist product, they were rubbing their hands, going, well, "We're going to get our, 
we're going to get our mitts on that as soon as possible. Um, well, <laughs> the, the main problem the Spanish had when they arrived is that they discovered that perhaps their wine, I don't imagine they had an awful lot of wine with them, number one. And number two, I, I understand it didn't travel very well. So they had to adapt. They had to basically grow to like or just accept that they had to drink these weird drinks. So mm. not just chocolate, they would have been pulque, which is, I think, a fermented type of corn drink. So they had to adapt to what they found in the new world. Initially, they were quite dismissive of these very, I mean, if anyone's seen cacao beans, they look like just big beans. They, As the name suggests, they're brown. They were interested in the gold and the silver and things like that. They were quite dismissive, I think, of these chocolate beans when they first saw them. But yes, they I had see. to adapt. They had to get their head around it. And they found that obviously by adding sugar, that it helped the drink immensely in terms of its palatability. So this is a very sweeping question covering quite a bit of history. How was chocolate sort of brought to Europe and to, and to Britain? And what, what form did British people see chocolate in, you know, when it first appeared? It could have come over as cacao beans. Obviously, it wouldn't be used as currency in Europe because no. we had coins at this point. We're talking about the 16th century here. So we didn't really, no one, no Europeans knew about chocolate really till until the early 16th century. And then eventually it comes to Europe through Spain because mm -hmm. they have their colonies in uh, Central America. When it first came to Europe, it was really a novelty. It was an expensive novelty at that. So it was, again, popular in courts. I see. And it possibly came over. I mean, there were certainly accounts where the nuns in Oaxaca were so renowned for making these chocolate cakes. And when I say talk about chocolate cake, I'm not talking about a nice fluffy chocolate fudge cake. Here. Oh, I'm right. Okay. Yeah, when they process the chocolate and they've ground it down uh, into the paste, they would form it into cakes, the paste into cakes. And sometimes those cakes would just be pure chocolate. Sometimes they would include the spices and they would be obviously shipped to the old world. Mm -hmm. So it was in Spain and then it obviously made its way through to Italy and France and eventually arrived in England. I mean, there's a wonderful story that apparently when uh, one of our privateers was out raiding Spanish ships. It came across a, a ship coming back from the Americas and was utterly appalled that it was filled with what they thought was sheep's dung, which they promptly tipped over overboard uh, because they were pretty annoyed, frankly, yeah. that, uh, that there was no gold and silver. It was just full of, um, you know, poo. <laughs> but it turns out the poo was actually cacao seeds. That's how we know that they it would have come over in in both forms, in cakes and sometimes as the raw, the raw beans. So that's how it got here. And it's, you know, it quickly spread. It's I guess it's one of those things. It's, you know, it's a novelty in Spain. And then you get an ambassador coming back saying, I've tried this this drink. And as I say, chocolate, uh, sugar helps immensely at this point. You know, it was a, it made it, once they put sugar into it, it, it suddenly became really mm. quite nice. At what point were people, well, people like you and I, Sam, the swinish multitude. <laughs> <laughs> when would we have got a taste for chocolate? Was it going into places like coffee shops and those sorts of places? Yeah, so when we get to the 17th century, you start to see the emergence of chocolate houses. Quite quickly, chocolate gained a reputation for being a bit more fun, a bit more, I suppose, upmarket. Chocolate was, you know, still considered to be quite an upper-class drink hmm. in the 17th century. In the early 18th century, 
that it was it was still not at this point of widely available to the general population, but more people could drink. It wasn't certainly something that was restricted to courts um, mm. like it perhaps would have been in the 16th century. It's really the 19th century where it sort of becomes an every man's drink um, at this mm. po- at that point when we get cocoa powder and people can go whether it's into a cocoa room or that's sort of the end of the 19th century or I just see. buy cocoa for drinking at home. Right. So I wanted to ask about that because it's something that's always confused me because I've often thought, hmm, let's try and recreate some early modern 17th century chocolate. And you see the recipes and there's some great stuff being put in there, isn't there, to yeah. flavour it. Things that you mentioned in, 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 your, in your book were things like chilli and nutmeg and ambergris and yeah. musk which I'm not even sure if they're available to buy anymore, but really exciting flavourings, yeah, aromatics put in there. So it's like, fine, okay, well, I can find these spices. Some of them I might not be able to find, but I can get nutmeg and chilli. But then I get to the problem of the chocolate itself. Because I've never been, been able to get my head around kind of what it is that they're drinking. They're not, drink, they're not making it out of cocoa, are they, in this sort of early period? What, what do you think they're making it out of? No, so it would have been, as I said, these cakes. So you can actually buy right. pure unsweetened chocolate. Um, it's very expensive for obvious reasons because it's pure unsweetened chocolate. But mm. it's um, that it would have been more like that. Oh. I mean, even that now, has to be fair, is nothing like you would have got in the 17th century because it's been processed um, using modern methods, obviously. But right. It would have been pure cacao. And the problem they had with pure cacao paste is once it had been ground down, it still wouldn't have been as fine as we would get today with the mills that we have, you know, the processing that we have. So there was an issue with perhaps grittiness, but also it's it's got a lot of fat in it. There's natural mm-hmm. cocoa butter is, is a product within the cocoa bean. And when you mix fat with water, it tends to separate So Mm -hmm. what the Europeans started to do is they would mix it with some kind of starch and that would help emulsify, if you like, the the fat. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so like a roux, I suppose, isn't it? Where you put flour in the butter and the milk. Absolutely. I mean, it still would have been pourable, but that's that's what they started out. And that produced a whole host of problems going forward into the 19th century about the purity of products and everything. But certainly when we're talking about 16th, 17th century, it would have been things like maize flour when they were over in the Americas to wheat flour and in back here. Eggs were used as well sometimes to sort of help thicken oh, I these see. products and sort of make them a little less greasy. Is that why um, soy is used in chocolate today as a bit of an emulsifier, a bit like the starches before? Yeah, so uh, my understanding is that soy lecithin, or lecithin that you right. get from yes. soy, yes. and it does, I think you can get it from eggs as well. That right. is used to make the chocolate more malleable when you want to mould chocolate into a shape, whether it's an egg or a bar. It's It helps with that process, and I think it helps get it through the machines and everything a bit easier. And as I said, even now, that sort of debate rages on about whether that's, is that an added, you know, that sort of additive, is it an adulterant? Generally, is it, it is accepted that it can be included. It's an improver, inverted commas. In these early days of chocolate houses, I'm assuming all the chocolate's being produced by slave labour? In South America, I don't imagine that any of the indigenous peoples were actually getting paid. I think the assumption was that the Spanish had arrived, and uh, now you're working for us. Yeah, you know, you put up or you shut up. 
Yeah. Um, unfortunately, in the case of the indigenous peoples, a lot of them died because the Spanish also kindly brought over European diseases, mm-hmm. which they had no resistance, which is why that they then had to ship labour over from Africa yeah. to fulfil that gap mm. was unfortunately produced as a result of so many of the native um, people dying from these diseases like smallpox. Yeah, smallpox and measles, wasn't it? They were the big two. Yeah. I mean, it was. I think it's it's horrific. It's something like there was only ten percent of the indigenous population left at, after I can't remember what period of time, but it, it's something horrendous. Uh, oh yeah, it's horrendous. I mean, the same things happened on the sugar colonies in the in the West Indies, the the British ones. Exactly. I mean, some groups went completely extinct, and you know, in the space of one hundred and fifty years, absolutely awful. Yeah. Could I ask about how chocolate's actually made? There's such a process to making it. It's not like tea, where you can make it with a jug and a sieve. Or coffee, okay, you have to roast it and grind it, but you you can do that with a pestle and mortar in your oven. But you're not going to make chocolate out of what we think of as chocolate today, out of some coffee beans at home. (laughs) There's no way you're going to do it. It has to be outsourced. First of all, it comes, it grows. It's quite an odd plant, cacao. They grow on like the trunks, these pods. And when you open the pods, they're actually, the seeds are covered in this white pulp. So first of all, they go through a fermentation process and that pulp sort of dissolves and dribbles away. And there are some accounts that it has been drunk in the past by people that produce cacao and not so much now. But uh, then you have to roast the beans to dry them out. Mm -hmm. um, And then you have to winnow them, which is remove the outer husks. And then you get your bean that at this point is now ready for processing. Now, depending on the reason you get different flavor profiles in cacao is very much on this roasting process, all these different stages, but particularly the roasting. So if something's been roasted a bit like coffee, if it's been roasted really highly, then the chances are your cacao is going to be quite bitter. Mm -hmm. But at that point, you can then start processing it. So it would have originally been ground with a matate, which is sort of like a, a big sort of a sort of a flat basin. Basin is probably not the right word, like a, but it, a quern that people used to yeah, use for grinding wheat with. But it was done with with hand, and it was you know mm. again these are you know they oh, I call them beans, but they're essentially they're and they're dried. So you imagine like a cacao bean is probably four or five times the size, maybe even bigger than that of a you know a coffee bean. So they're quite big things to process, mm. and then. During that sort of the processing, the, the grinding, that's when you start to get the cocoa liquor or cacao liquor produced. I see. And that is that is the start of what we call chocolate. The whole thing's like a massive paste, but it consists of cocoa butter, mm-hmm. which obviously we know because uh, it gets used in cosmetics a lot of the time yes, of now. Course. A, lot, a lot of it is extracted from the um, chocolate making process even now. Cocoa ma- mass is the residue left after the cocoa butter has been removed. And that's the basis of cocoa powder, although back in the 16th and 17th century, we didn't have cocoa powder. That comes along a bit later. Mm. The term cocoa solids is what is what refers to the combination of cocoa butter and cocoa mass that you find in a chocolate bar. I understand. Did people think that there was a, a medicinal or spiritual benefit to consuming chocolate? I mean, less so in the days of Cadbury. I'm suppose thinking about when it first came over 
from the new world. Certainly the Mayans and the Aztecs used it in a lot of ceremonies. Um, and again, we having to unfortunately rely on European accounts, some of which quite gruesome. To my mind, I do wonder whether they're somewhat exaggerated. So one of the nicest stories is that it was used in uh, a form of baptism that they used to use with kids and they used to anoint key parts of their body with chocolate. I see. Oh, the liquid chocolate, um, which is nice. And there's also tales of human sacrifice, which may or may not be <laughs> true. Mm-hmm. Likewise, a story I heard recently was that the, I can't remember, it was the Aztecs or the Mayans used to um, use the water that they bathed their deceased in to make chocolate because it helped the living relatives feel that they were closer to the deceased person. Oh, I see. But again, that might just be a legend. So a kind of corpse tea. <laughs> corpse tea, yes. I see. <laughs> so, yeah, there, there were those sort of stories. It did have spiritual connotations, certainly for the indigenous peoples that were consuming it. Uh, in terms of the Europeans, they quickly recognised that it was very nutritious. So from a health perspective, initially it was viewed as certainly a, a healthy product. Um, And even even into the 19th century, it was certainly being marketed as a wholesome product that you give your children so that they could grow up to be big and strong. Although it was we do sweeten cocoa or did sweeten cocoa. It wasn't, dare say, nowhere near as sweet as commercial hot chocolate is these Mm. days. So anyway, so, yes, it was certainly viewed as a healthy product. And this accounts from like in the 17th, uh, 18th century of people being able to survive in it. You know, there was a lady in Martinique that apparently lost a lower jaw and she survived on three cups of chocolate a day. When I say cups, <laughs> I have to, I imagine they were quite big cups. I'm not talking like little, <laughs> little tiny coffee cups here, like espresso cups. But uh, yeah, I mean, whether that was true or not, I don't know. But it was certainly viewed as having health benefits initially, mm. certainly when it came out and it was supposed to treat all sorts of weird and wonderful things as so many substances were in those days but uh yeah it was viewed as healthy for the most part some people didn't like it i mean mm. henry stubb was less convinced he wrote a book on an entire book and it called the indian nectar and he was less convinced of its health benefits and actually thought that the chilies in it could be quite dangerous for the young folk perhaps inflaming passions i think was his fear at that point but uh, mm. well talking about inflaming passions leads me on to my next question of uh, then as now, I think chocolate has been thought of as a aphrodisiac. It's kind of thought of one of the sexier mm. foods. I wonder why that is. I, I guess it's kind of like, is it the melt? The fact it maybe just, sort of just melts at, at body temperature or something? It's, it's interesting. So it was certainly thought to, it's, well, I find it interesting. It was certainly thought to be an aphrodisiac. And that has had that reputation for a long time. Again, we're relying on accounts from the Spanish uh, conquistadors when they arrived in Central America. And they said that particularly um, Montezuma II was said to drink several cups of chocolate before he visited his two wives and harem of mistresses Mm -hmm. to prepare him for the rigours ahead. Uh, So this is how (laughs) apparently it started to get its uh, reputation. I see. Is it an aphrodisiac? I mean, I think it's, I personally think that, I mean, there's been very little to prove that it is. But number one, but number two, uh, I think it's probably through its marketing that we now perceive that that it. I mean, it, is, it has a nice feel, as you say, in the mouth and everything. Mm-hmm. But it is, and I think Isabella Lende said something like, "There's nothing quite like the feel of chocolate mousse on the skin." In her book Aphrodite, but I think it's been it's sexualized. I think in its uh, way, it's been marketed, and you only have to look at things like 
the Cadbury's Flake advert, for example, springs well, to mind. Indeed, yes, that's the thing that's uh, to my mind too. <laughs> those of a certain age, I don't believe they advertise Flake in such a way anymore. But uh, it's, no, it was it, unbelievable. I'll hunt some of these adverts out. Actually, and maybe, you can get maybe them online. Put them in the show notes. Yeah, because yeah, some of them they are. Actually, yeah, by today's I mean, standards, pretty, pretty full on. But you think about it. Actually, when you see them on TV, when you look, watch them on YouTube, uh, seriously, you think, how on earth did they get away with with that? Really? Yeah. But uh, yeah, so um, I think I personally have doubts that it is. I I'm, I would err on the side where it isn't going to make you feel particularly sexy. No, I think it might be in the head. I was, I was about else. to say it's in the eye or, or the loins yeah. of the beholder, whether something's yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yuck or not. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Whatever floats your boat. Can we talk about cooking with chocolate? I mentioned all those flavourings, and you mentioned things like you know eggs and all sorts being added to enrich mm. it and thicken it. When were things like chocolate cakes appearing? And, and are you much of a cook when it comes to to chocolate? Do I cook with it? Yeah. Yeah, I do. I mean, I think now we expect chocolate to be uh, in coming cake form. Yeah, I suppose we bars, do. Yeah, yeah. Brownies being the classic. I'm actually I'm not a big fan of brownies. It's probably my, one of my least favourite cakes. But I do, uh, and I have actually made, as part of my own podcast, uh, Sasha Talk recently. Oh, I love Sasha Talk. And that's actually, oh. I that's for me is the right level of chocolatiness. So I interviewed Michael Crondall, who wrote um, Sweet Invention, which is um, about the history of desserts. And he talks mm. about Sasha Talks. It has quite an interesting history of its own, quite a relative, as we for us, a relatively recent history, because we're talking about 19th century Vienna here. Mm. But it's not too chocolatey. And he says that's one of the criticisms people level at this cake is that it's it's not chocolatey enough. But for me, it was the right level of chocolatiness. Prior to the 19th century, though, as I said, it was used quite often as really more as an accent. It was a colour. I know people like Richard Briggs, and I'm sure Elizabeth Raphael got recipes in her book for chocolate puffs or chocolate creams, perhaps. Yeah, she does. There's a chocolate recipe, yes. So you do see chocolate creams out there. But actually, when you read the recipe, it's interesting because they don't have that much chocolate in them when you compare to the amount of milk, for example. Mm. So their chocolate creams tend to be a bit like a chocolate custard, served cold, sometimes spices, sometimes the things mm-hmm. that are ambergris mm-hmm. and like described earlier. And they're popular from sort of the 17th and 18th centuries onwards. But actually the, the amount of chocolate in there, it doesn't tend to be that much. And it's quite a surprise because you think it's not going to be very chocolatey, but... I don't know whether that's to do with the price. I suspect it had something to do with the price of the product at the time. I mean, there's yeah. there's loads of accounts of people getting banged up for stealing chocolate cakes. And as I think at this point, I'm talking about cakes of chocolate yes. to be processed rather than a chocolate gatto. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, it's really the 19th century, end of the 19th century, where you start to see chocolate appear in mm. recipes for cakes and things like sponge cakes. Yeah, what we think of today, I suppose, as confectionery, patisserie, yeah. that sort of thing. Sasha Tort was probably one of the earliest. Not, I'm not going to say it was the earliest, but probably one of the earliest. It's a good one. I made one once. I'm not going to make it again. It's quite complicated, isn't it? But it was uh, definitely worth. It's definitely worth doing once. I would say it's yeah. The cake itself isn't too bad to make. It's the icing I found the issue with, and it's mm-hmm. it's interesting because there's. 
if you need to go back and listen to my podcast I did on the on Sasha talk but it's it's there's a huge amount of controversy over the recipe because the rest the original recipe that was invented by Fran Sasha was associated with his son's hotel uh, Edward Sasha's hotel in Vienna uh, and when uh, it was subsequently sold the new owners of the hotel assumed that they were going to acquire the oh, original okay. recipe. But Edward, I think it was Edward Jr., the grandson of the inventor, had actually sold it, the recipe to Demel's in Vienna, which is a very famous patisserie in Vienna. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's been a huge number of court cases in the 20th century. So now the upshot is that the original Sasha tort is only available from the Sasha Hotel. I see. So, but the original Sasha tort has a boiled chocolate icing, which doesn't make it sound very nice, but it's basically, a, it's a sugar syrup with chocolate. Oh, I see. But okay. the problem is, the minute you add the chocolate, it tends to start setting and it's, yeah. Mm. And then you have to I'm write, you have to write Sasha tort on it as well. All that kind of stuff. That's when I yeah. start to really lose interest. And Yeah, I didn't bother <laughs> with that when I made it. I just, yeah, anyway. I've never been a, much of a decorator. <laughs> no i'm not things. either i have to say i can make things taste taste nice they're looking nice not so much yeah so, no yeah. i'm the same i want to ask you about chocolate bars because that's yes. the, obviously today that's the probably the main way we're eating chocolate chocolate bars i should think their heyday was the i was thinking of um roll roll dal roll dal's um autobiography boy where he really talks about all the chocolate bars that you used to eat at the well the, the first section of the 20th century you know your mars bars and your fries creams and all that kind of stuff yeah. do you have any favorite chocolate bars what which, which ones are your go-tos now i just i want to contradict what i always say because i always say i don't have a terribly sweet tooth but i do like a cadbury caramel i have to say if i'm going to eat trashy chocolate sorry cadbury <laughs> i do put you in that bracket <laughs> I mean, I'm one of these fortunate people that I can eat a bit of chocolate and I'm like a square or two of chocolate and that, that's me done. I don't, I'm not a chocoholic. I'm not an right. addict addicted to chocolate, although I suspect people who are addicted to chocolate are more addicted to the sugar and the fat combo than chocolate itself. Mm. But a really good quality chocolate, bean to bar chocolate bar is, for me, is is what, what it's all about. Uh, I don't like it too bitter. So about 70% is mm. a good balance for me. Um, or a good quality milk chocolate. But I do will say, I do miss, actually, I found out when I was doing my research that apparently the original cream egg was invented by Fry's, but Cadbury's yeah. had, had acquired Fry's or soon yes, after they, they bought, them, it, out, didn't they? bought yes. them out. So it then eventually, it was marketed for a long time, apparently, as the Fry's cream egg, and then it eventually became the Cadbury's cream egg. I've only ever known it as a Cadbury's cream mm. egg, but apparently it was Fry's. But originally, Fry's used to produce a marshmallow version. And interestingly, mm. when I was a kid, we used to have, I, we still used to be able to get fries. I don't know whether they were fries, but we used to be able to get toffee marshmallow eggs. And I've never seen them since I was very small. Mm. So um, I think they must have been stopped being produced in the 70s at some point. Uh, yeah. So they, I would buy those. I suspect I'd find it too sweet now. Oh, God. Yeah. I couldn't eat a cream egg now. No, not a cream egg, but or yeah, I do like, like a walnut. I do like a walnut whip. I like a walnut whip. Of course, there was controversy recently with Cadbury's and their cream eggs because uh, they stopped using dairy milk chocolate for their cream eggs, didn't they? And well, people yeah. were up in arms, quite rightly. I think chocolate industry is, I mean, it's a very lucrative industry. 
But of course, a lot of these companies, even the companies that we think of being big, like Cadbury's, have been bought out by even bigger companies. And they, you know, at the end of the day, it's a, I guess it's all about making money. And it's a bit hard to make money when you're putting a glass and a half of milk into every Cadbury bar. You know, you have to cut yes, corners. Yes, glass and a half, indeed. We didn't mention that, did we? It's healthy because we've put some milk in it. Well, you know, it was. this is again, you know, you talked about chocolate being a health product. Even chocolate bars were marketed in their original, you know, sort of in the early 20th century, chocolate bars were being marketed as being something of a, a healthy snack. So there was an advert where they were typists portrayed as, you know, being pert and alert in in the afternoon because they'd had a mid-morning snack of a chocolate bar. I think that might have been Cadbury's. I could have got, got the company wrong. But, yeah, there you know, there was lots of advertising, again, and they were invariably aimed at women. Um, so, again, there, there's a, that's a, a whole different <laughs> section, probably a whole different yeah, podcast we could do on that. we won't get into that now. <laughs> no. But, it, you know, they even into the, you know, really, even probably in our childhood, you know, it was a finger of fudge is just enough to give your kid a treat, but in the miles a day helps you work, rest and play. Yeah, you know, all those taglines that aren't used anymore. Yeah, of course. They were still being marketed to a degree as a healthy snack. Not so much now, obviously, because people, <laughs> that's probably not a good thing to go. But yes, is there has been controversy over the sort of reduction in the use of dairy milk in Cadbury products. Mm. rather than they, I think the bar is still... I'm told safe, although my husband tells me he thinks the recipe's changed, but yeah, I don't know. It's time to wrap up. I don't want to keep you anymore. Thank you very much for coming to talk about the philosophy of chocolate. Where can people find out more about you? You're on social media and things. Where can people find you? You can go to my website, sambilton.com. Nice and easy, Easy, hopefully, to remember. Yeah, so everything's (laughs) on there. That's where you can buy the book. The, The book is available should be available in most good bookshops whether they're independents which i would recommend people visit if they have an independent bookshop on their doorstep Mm -hmm. or the high street and obviously you can get it online you can get it through the british library's bookshop as well which i believe you can order stuff online through them as well direct so that's the options for buying the book excellent in terms of me you can find me on instagram and twitter at at mrs bilton that's with two s's and i'm also on blue sky and threads and probably other social media oh, it's channels. It's getting complicated, isn't it? I shall... It's just too complicated. I'll put everything in the show notes. Yeah, that's probably um, the easiest people. thing to do. And of course, when you, you alluded to it earlier in our conversation, um, there's your podcast, Comfortably yes. Hungry. Yeah, so um, I'm quite new to the game of podcasting. I'm only on my second season. And uh, probably not surprisingly, the second season is on chocolate. I've already had a few episodes out, including mm. one on the Day of the Dead and mm. Sausage Salt that we've just talked about. So, yeah, there's there's lots to listen to and there will be more coming up after Christmas in the new year. Excellent. Well, it's a great podcast. And, of course, there's that classic episode about Tripe, the one that everybody, I'm sure, writes in about, <laughs> <laughs> that you and I did. I still think Tripe probably deserves to be rehabilitated. You still haven't hunted out any more Tripe? I have not, no. I haven't managed to find it, Shocking. I'm afraid. <laughs> I keep meaning to have another go too, but, you know... Yeah, I think I think I might have to. Maybe I'll have to. Maybe I'll have to just go to a restaurant where they serve it somewhere like St John's. That's it, St John. Let the professionals cook it. Thank you very much, Sam. All of Sam's social media handles and website are in the show notes for you because it is pretty confusing these days. And there's a link to her book on the British Library website. 
also in the show notes links to previous episodes about chocolate. There's A Dark History of Chocolate with Emma Kay and a really early season one episode, that series I did on Lent, about pagan Lent and Easter. But as part of that episode, I talk about chocolate and chocolate eggs with Dormouse Chocolates, Manchester's only bean-to-bar chocolatier. There are some links to some of those Cadbury's Flake adverts. And seeing as we mentioned Cadbury's Caramel, the ad with the sexy Cadbury's bunny on it. The 1980s and 1990s were weird, weird times, weren't they? This week's two Easter eggs are one about the early chocolate manufacturers in Britain, Fry's, Cadbury's and Roundtree's, plus a little, well, a sort of outtake really, where we discuss whether white chocolate is really chocolate. I do hope you enjoy them. Time to go. Remember, I want your comments and ideas, contact info, all in the show notes. But until next time, please take care. Cheerio. Cheerio.